I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Thank you very much indeed uh, to everyone here at the London Review Bookshop for hosting this event in conversation with Sally Potter. Um, I'd like to start with a, with a short joke, if I may, which has been vetted, I should say, for literary quality by a member of the bookselling staff here, which I think sets the scene, perhaps, for the, uh, the nature of Sally's achievement. And uh, it's very simple. But I'd like to ask you, what did the hat say to the scarf? Would anyone like to answer there? No? You hang around and I'll go on ahead. And the reason I use that as the way in is because, of course, Sally has always been going on ahead and uh, has never been resting or hanging around on her laurels, which, of course, are another form of headgear. But I think if we just remind ourselves of Sally's extraordinary seven-feature achievement, she started by mining the rich seam of gold diggers with Julie Christie. She then reminded a popular... Swedish beat combo of their misnaming of a key song and in fact there was something in the air that night and the stars they were shining bright for Orlando not of course for who they did name a little later she considered the man who cried before Sam Taylor would have even got the handkerchiefs out she showed us that the best way to say no is to say yes She revealed that to rage against the machine, you should enter the machine by making the first feature film for mobile phone platform. She returned to her own uh, origins, her own teenage life in Ginger and Rosa, but not before she had revealed that a tango lesson is much more fun than one in school hours. So we have seven key works there that always show Sally moving ahead, never, never, as I said, settling on the achievements of the previous work. And in this book, Naked Cinema, which we'll come to in just a second, she speaks to many of the famous actors she's worked with, from Julie Christie to Jude Law, from Tilda Swinton to Timothy Spall, and lays out a way of thinking about the relationship with the actor, which is definitely not a procedure that she's then asking everyone to follow. And it's based on this decades-long engagement with the actor. So Naked Cinema, um, the obvious relationship that that suggests title-wise is with, for me anyway, is with Peter Brook's Empty Space. Because there, Peter Brook is considering the arena of performance, if you like, and he pairs things back to a certain kind of essential origin and makes the pitch that as soon as somebody crosses a space, as, you know, even as we are now, then we are being observed and therefore are starting to perform. Was that something in mind? Did that kind of, um, that sense of a, of, of a, a prior text inform how you were thinking about what the body of the actor does in Naked Cinema? 
No prior text, just prior experience. Mm -hmm. uh, I really made the decision that the book would not be scholarly, would not refer to the work of others, would not be looking at how other people had done things, but was really in a bare and spare kind of way mm -hmm. going to describe what I had pragmatically learned from experience works when working with actors. Mm -hmm. And the the bare, the naked factor, the stripping away, um, is a reference both to the state into which an actor must enter in order to, a sort of state of transparency in order for the audience to be able to relate so intimately to them and feel that they are their dearest friend, feel that they know them. Mm -hmm. um, it's a form of emotional nakedness and professional exposure. Um, and then the, the process that I wanted to strip away really was what is central about acting to film? What is central about the human face in the frame um, as a, as a, 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 if you like, a magnet of identification or a point, the, the point that one wants to look at in the frame, however beautiful or elaborate it may be, however many special effects, mm -hmm. it's the human. So the actor is central, is, is part of the bare bones of a film. But this is something, I mean, this focus on the, on the actor, on the face and the body of the actor is something that was kind of slightly at odds to the, the kind of, you know, the, the agenda of experimental film, wasn't it? When you joined the London Filmmakers Co-op early in its, in its life, where structuralism and where, in a sense, a removal from that sense of the body was a much more dominant mode. Did you have a sense of, of already even early, you know, even at that very early stage before feature films were on the horizon and so on, and when you were still working in experimental performance and choreography, did you have a sense of going against the mainstream of even an alternative cinema? Well, though? always, of course, and yeah, on yeah. principle. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that even within um, a group of outsiders like the London <coughs> Filmmakers Cooperative, I always felt like a, dub a double outsider. Of course, I was a girl too, yeah, yeah. meant I was in a very, very small minority um, of those present. But what I learned from the London Filmmakers Cooperative, who were really, at the time, very heavily influenced by linguistic semiotic theory and were trying to do another kind of stripping away, which was to figure out what really was the language of cinema, not what we think of as the language of cinema, shots, counter shots, um, mm -hmm. tracking shots, narrative and so on, but really uh, stripping away narrative, stripping away shots and counter shots right back to the very matter of film, the physicality of it. And there was such rigor in that approach, such deep thoughtfulness, that even though I profoundly disagreed with it, it was an incredible education. It was a way of, in a way, measuring what I thought was important. So my earliest films were very minimalist, mm -hmm. and the, the taste for austerity, an austerity of vision, a kind of plainness of language, has absolutely stuck with me. Um, but even my very first, uh, earliest films always had a human somewhere in the frame. And uh, I was interested in what humans did and what that meant and not necessarily in storytelling terms, but in terms of what narrative out of time is evoked by looking at a face. What do you start to read? 
But of course, I mean, this interest and, and this love of the, the human performer goes back to your grandmother, who was an actor, your mother, who was also a music, musical performer and so on. So it was in the family. And, and could you just give us a sense of, of the, the impact those relationships and their, and their professional activities had on you? Your mother was an, more an amateur performer, but your grandmother had a moment, didn't she, when she was very much a professional She had performer. a big moment. Yeah, yeah. She was in Charlotte's Review, yeah, yeah. Um, which meant, and she always said she was a little bit too short to be a show girl and a little bit too tall to be an ingenue but actually she ended up being an ingenue Um, but what really happened was that in my childhood she had long since given up being on the stage professionally but the longing in her eyes when she talked about her time on the stage riveted me and uh, I adored her grandmothers yes um and um she had kept her box of grease paints little black tin and i remember opening it it sort of folded backwards and this smell of the grease paint you know coming up um and she told me stories and so on so i had a feeling for the world that she'd been part of and the love of her profession she loved her family too, and she was a fantastic cook. But there was nothing like that fire in her eyes when she talked about being on the stage. My mother too longed to be on the stage, but she wanted to be an opera singer. And uh, I think once she'd done her first touring show in the chorus of an ice show in Diggs, the longing was somewhat deflated and it came late in life too. Um, but nobody in my family was involved in film. No. But I think I had the enormous good fortune to be born into a family where the making of art, whether it's a poem, a piece of music, uh, writing a book, uh, being in a play, was considered as serious as road building, medicine, engineering, or any of the other things that we take for granted are necessary for our human survival. I was never in any doubt that the great project of trying to make something and trying to make it well um, had was soul food. But, I mean, you were performing uh, yourself very early on. Although you were given an 8mm camera in your early teens, the first incarnation of this kind of expressive, creative response came through various forms of experimental performance, choreography, and, and you know, mixed-media work of various hues. Was this, a, was this a, a period in which you were constantly waiting to, to, to get to grips with film, or was it in a, in a more substantial way, or was it something that you were absolutely immersed in in its own terms? with the pleasures that came with that? Waiting, never. It's the female disease of centuries. Absolutely not. But I think there is no real training to be a film director. It's a mongrel medium. You have to know a lot about a lot of different things. And one of the best ways to learn is to do different things to do with... I mean, every film has musical decisions in it. Whether you use music or not, you're always working with sound and silence, the basic elements of music. Um, Every film has to have a choreographer's eye because, like Peter Brook, you have to decide whether people are moving from left to right or right to left, if they're still, if they're coming forward, if they're going away. These are choreographic decisions. Um, You have to know how to work with people. You have to be in a... It's a highly social medium when you're shooting, 
not when you're writing, but when you're shooting is. Um, and um, so the psychology of uh, collaboration, which you get much more in live work because it's, you can turn it over quicker because it's less expensive. All of those things with, with hindsight and drawing, I was at art school for a year, you have to have a, a draftsman's eye. Uh, you have to know how to frame what it means, what are the positions of power, what are the... You have to train yourself how to look, how to see. Um, <coughs> where was I? Deep in the immersion of the process, which we'll come to again now. Yeah. The book has, in a sense, it's a book of two halves, although there are four parts to it. And in the first part, you 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 take us through the process of working with actors. Or you start before that, if you like. You start with the, the idea and you take us through the conception of the project through to uh, the, the studio or the location shoot. And in the second half, you speak to many of the great actors that you've worked with, obviously, to hear their voice because you very much want to honour their response to the process they've been through. But you're very, very clear at the beginning that this is not you know, a manual for working with actors and that you're not drawing on or responding to other you know, publications and, and thoughts by other directors on that process. And yet at the same time, you're in dialogue really with yourself, aren't you? Your younger self partly, yourself now with the chance to reflect outside of the sort of frenetic nature of a shoot on this process. And do you think now... And if you could give us a sense of how that journey through the production works, do you think now you have arrived at a certain sense of, of, of a model of working, if not an imprinted, fixed position? An in-principle model. Mm. Um, as I go through the in chronological order, the whole sequence mm. in the first half of the book of first imagining an actor whilst writing playing the role, not necessarily a specific one, but imagining how hear, how sayable th lines are or how possible it might be to embody this character who is emerging, who I'm finding in some sense, through to actually casting the realities of choosing somebody and auditions, the horror of auditions, that they can be hor horrific, they can be not, um, through then to the contentious issue of rehearsal and preparation, um, which for some film actors is um, a site of some fear, because they fear that by rehearsing or over-preparing, they're going to lose their most valuable asset, which is the ability to arrive in the moment freshly in a surprising way, the, the, the spontaneous moment of that has to be captured by the camera. So navigating that terrain, finding a way of rehearsing that is about thinking about why something is there, how and what a character is doing, what they're doing, not setting how to do it in stone and then trying to repeat that during a shoot, mm -hmm. but creating a, a bank of knowledge and self-knowledge with the actors, along with, from a director's point of view, building essentially and most importantly a relationship, a relationship of trust. Because it is in within the, the crucible of this relationship that every performance on film emerges. So, um, so then into the, the craziness of a shoot, which is like a, a form of, of, in a way, warfare. Um, uh, warfare against time, against, uh, insecurity, against weather, against all, all manner of, of things. A, a sprint, if you like, in the middle of this marathon. And then in the cutting room, you're, you as a director 
remain in relationship with the absent actor. You are continuing to work with their image and with the memory of the shoot all day, every day, for months and months. Mm. Then you actually meet them again in the flesh for um, the premiere, the press junket, and so on. And all of these are facets of of the working relationship which make up the totality of making a film. So the first half of the book is structured taking a walk through those and addressing some of the practicalities, the toolkit, if you like, of this highly relationship-driven um, relationship, working relationship, um, along with the philosophical questions that then arise about the true nature of the self, the acted self, the self that the actor comes to embody, the nature of character, um, and the difference between uh, performing on stage and performing for the camera. What this camera, as Timothy Spall says in his interview, he calls it the usurper, the interloper, this little, this metal thing. How you develop a relationship with that and come to understand it as, as the doorway to the most intimate of relationships with every individual member of the audience. So the, the first half of the book takes a walk through all of those practical and philosophical ideas. Um, and when I was working on them, at one point people were asking me, well, could you give some examples, some concrete examples? And I found that I was stumbling over examples because the relationship that a director has with an actor, ideally, in my view, needs to be one of absolute confidentiality. This is, these are not people to have smashing anecdotes about interesting or salacious or gossipy. In fact, one of my manifesto points is never gossip. Um, so I decided instead to, as you said, interview 14 of the actors and put to them questions that related to things I had been writing about and, mm. and see what would come up. Well, I was always worried that they were saying things to please me rather than <laughs> necessarily what they would say to somebody else. But um, nevertheless, mostly we shared views and occasionally their views were very uh, contradictory to mine. Mm. So the dialogue, in a way, is between the first half of the book and the second half of the book. Mm. And it is this, this profound sense of a, of a conversation, an unending conversation that is the work of the director with mm. the actor. I mean, this this issue of embodiment is crucial, isn't it? Not least before anything um, enters the, the frame of film, because film itself has all the requirements of craft and skill to, to assemble it that any actually existing artifact does. But of course, it doesn't exist. As you say in the book, you can't hold it. You can hold a DVD, but you can't hold the work itself. It exists outside of material um, acquisition, shall we say. And at the same time, the, the relationship with the body, the, the, the persona, the, the incarnation of the actor goes through from the idea on the page into the set, the location shoot, and then into the, the pixelated edit, shall we say. And how does that embodiment work in relation to the actual embodiment of performance? You mentioned just now, of course, there's a, there's a great difference. But were you genuinely thrown, shocked, or could you carry a lot across from your, your decade-long engagement with the actual body of the performer in a space like this when you enter the filmmaking as a full-time pursuit? You know what? I got lost somewhere in that question. I think I did as well. Anyone else? Yeah. I think, if I may be so bold, yeah, that you were talking about what's the relationship between a, being a performer and being a director? 
Part, I'm partly sort of that, in partly the that. <laughs> no, absolutely. But also, um, how how different if it was um, working with the you know the embodied actor, should we say, the performer on stage in whatever stage you know, however experimental that might be, live live and film. Should we just call it that? Live um, and film. Better, worse, easier, more surprising. Well, the glory and tragedy of live work is that it is live. You are in a unique moment that will never be repeated again. Um, it cannot be repeated again. Um, and with that comes something, something extraordinary, something mysterious, something magnetic, and something melancholic because it is impermanent. With film, the glory and the tragedy is you're working and you're working and you're working to something that will eventually be fixed and you can't change it after you've fixed it. So it is permanently there as an experience in a little box or online or something. You can't pick it up and go, hmm, mine. I mean, it's, sort of, it's very exciting having a book for the first time. I thought, God, a real thing. <laughs> after these films that they're a breath, you know, they're, they're on the wind, they're gone. Um, and yet you've so many hundreds of people put their lifeblood, their extraordinary amounts of work into this, this transient, mm-hmm. transient art form. Look, in live work, as a director, you're working with people. You're working in some kind of frame, even when you're working in the round. Uh, you're learning how to bring out the best in people, which, in my view, is about how you look at them. You look at somebody and you search for their genius. It's there. It may not be right on top this moment, but it's there. And if you look at people with that attentive, respectful, loving regard, looking at what they are, but also what they want to become and what you want them to become, they blossom like a flower in front of your eyes. And you learn that as a director um, work in live work. You can apply that to the screen. But what with film, there's something else. The camera reads things in a different way than your eyes. So you have to look at what's there, but you also have to look at what the camera has found that is there. So a theatre uh, actor's performance, for example, which is fabulous and you're blown away by it, can be completely flat on film because it can be diffuse. Uh, it needn't be, but it can be, um, and vice versa. So understanding that, and also, of course, the, the lens can be microscopic. It can read tiny nuances of, of facial expression, which some theatre act- actors therefore believe means that you have to make everything smaller and smaller and smaller because you're going to go, and it'll look ridiculous. But it's not really about making things smaller, but it's about making them come from very, very deep within. So the work that you do with an actor to to prepare for that is a lot about interior, subtle nuance of thought and feeling and then trusting that the camera will read this work. That makes tremendous demands on film actors. Again, it's this nakedness. It's like 
stripping away, layer after layer, veil after veil of habit, of the way that our skin assumes these habits of a lifetime that then are mistaken to be what we call personality or the self. The act of gnosis is it's all an illusion. And, but to get to achieve the state of, of transparency in which you transmit experience takes tremendous emotional courage. I mean, the book is obviously about working with actors, but like anything that's given, you know, uh, real the real rigor of, of extended attention, it becomes applicable to many other art forms and many other engagements. But equally, the camera, we've just talked about, you know, this relationship between live work and film. The camera and the filmic space is not a, obviously a monoculture either. And you've gone, just to name two works, from, you know, the, the huge sweeps and vistas of Orlando, shall we say, to, you know, the absolutely restricted cupboard-like space of rage in which the performer is as naked as they could be with no other assistance, solo with a, a, a changing backdrop of colour and nothing else. So just to take those two examples, how did they work in terms of establishing your ongoing relationship with what the actor is and what the actor needs in such different spaces? Well, in the case of Orlando, I had um, had a very, very long development process because it was considered the unmakeable film and so on. Um, and so the benefit I discovered of having terrible difficulty raising money for something is you've, you you really get a lot of opportunity to refine, <laughs> to really refine. So, you know, script draft number 238, um, fifth year of private rehearsal with Tilda. These things pay off. Uh, what I learned was... No work is wasted, ever. And the film, a film is the tiny tip, actually, visible tip of an enormous mountain. And you need that invisible mountain. People feel it in the results. It's not about showing everything or using every idea on the contrary. Chuck it out, you know, left, right, and center. But it remains as a sort of worked state of intention, um, that manifests in, in subtle ways on the screen. So, um, nevertheless, that film, despite these five year, seven year for me, but five years of on off rehearsal with Tilda and so on, involved massive numbers of people, huge amounts of travel, loads of different seasons and, you know, frozen ice in Russia and the desert in Uzbekistan and costumes galore all made with lots of students in my apartment as it happens under Sandy Powell's magnificent leadership and design. So, okay, that's one way of working. By the time I'd got to Rage, I was really interested in how how, just how austere, minimal, and simple can you be and still evoke something much, much bigger than itself? How, what can you do with the soliloquy, which is essentially what it is? It's a sequence of soliloquies. And also, how can I make, if you like, filmmaking in your pocket, you know, in your back pocket, green screen, I work the camera, sound recordist, actor. So that was it, the triangle, the three of us. Um, and each actor worked for two days only and so on. And I went back to the beginning of the film and started again with each actor. So it was a structure, if you like, that, that was a way of exploring, the, I guess, the opposite end of the spectrum. What one can evoke with the simplest possible means, but with a deep, deep intimacy with each actor who is themselves incredibly exposed. 
And I discovered that even the most experienced actors, like Judy Dunch, who's one of the interviewees here, said it was one of the, the most terrifying things she'd ever done. She had never felt so exposed in her life. I mean, of course, what both those examples give, however uh, different in scale, is absolutely supportive of your afterword, you know, that follows the, the interview section, where you distill shared positions from the 14 interviews. And what's most clear from that, and is, you know, heads up the the section is this issue well twofold i suppose the issue of trust which is first of all a human trust and then a technical professional trust that you know what you're doing but crucially this issue of kindness that most actors regardless of their status scale and everything else want the director to be kind that doesn't mean that they don't want you to be rigorous and and even occasionally ruthless but they want you to be kind and of course kind suggests a kind of kin you know it's the same etymological stem as as kindred you're sharing a space and this brings us on to collaboration and i wonder how the many many people that make a film possible of course even a film like rage behind the scenes and in post-production and everything how that larger relationship they're also performers in this process in different ways although they're not being necessarily there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You looked at by the camera lens, how you navigate those relationships and do any of the insights that this process brings to you apply to those other non-camera illuminated roles the crew the crew people behind the camera let's keep it short the crew (laughs) okay there's a new haiku approach to the questions from now on (laughs) the crew um no listen one casts people in front of the camera and you cast people behind the camera it's about choosing people that you're going to be able to work with in an extremely intense way in an extremely (coughs) trusting way that may not be there from the beginning people who are going to be willing to come into your vision and and be led in this collaboration and um, when you're actually making the film you are absolutely all in it together it's a 360 degree situation what you finally see is just that bit that the camera was framing but of course, the relationships with the the crew, with particularly for the director, with the heads of department. In other words, whoever's on camera, sound, costume, design, and the producer. These key individuals who each have a team. Um, one one has to build extremely fast, mm-hmm. a very very clear, a clear practical vision that they will inhabit and feel. Each of them is their own, but they will also surrender in a way to the to the demands of of the script and of the of the working process mm-hmm. I mean of course, one of your films uh, challenges this idea that the actor is another person because of course in Tango Lesson you performed what did that do, and how did that work for you in that process in light of what we 're talking about 
fucking shit scared every second. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, yes, there I was (laughs) performing on camera um, and having had, you know, my hair done and sort of bits of makeup and all this stuff. I thought, God, what are the actors complaining about? It's fabulous getting up at 6am and having somebody massage my face and stuff like that. Get up, do the take, look up from the, at the end of the take, expressions of utter indifference in the crew. Nobody saying, hey, Sal, that was, oh, that was pretty good. Or I think, you know, very good, but should we try it again doing X? You know, all the, the things that a director does. There was, there was no director. She was nowhere to be seen. And that was, of course, I was entirely to blame. But, um, what I learnt was, the, the the road of the autodidact, which I have followed ruthlessly since I left school at 16 to be a director, this was, in a way, the big one. <laughs> Get over there on the other side of the camera. Give yourself a leading role, first time on film at the age of 46, dancing tango backwards in high heels, you know, and with some undirectable Argentinian tango dancers as your opposite <laughs> people. So it was... An amazing, an amazing education, and it was there that I really, really understood this thing, this this small word, kindness, what it means. You know, the the tutored, compassionate eye of the director holds the space. Mm-hmm. It is a psychic reality, <coughs> um, and without that, it is without boundary. And with it, it's, it's undiscriminating and endless. So I was trying to do that for myself um, uh, with great, di- with some difficulty. Um, but I think I became a much, much better director as, as a consequence, a much, much better director of actors as a consequence. But you talk, you know, throughout the book and, and very persuasively and correctly, of course, about the idea that there is no such thing really as a mistake. It's in a sense another possibility waiting to be explored, and and yet at the same time, of course, you you never settle back on a, on a on a way of thinking that is not informed by doubt at certain points and so on. So, in terms of these mistakes that are not mistakes, can you think back on on the process so far and and see very particularly where what might have been collectively held at that point in the shoot to be a mistake has redirected itself or did redirect itself? Of course, you know this notion that. Mistakes are, you know, there to be learnt from. They're the great teacher and so on. You know, this rather Pollyanna-ish position, which I hold to doggedly, of course, is rubbish <laughs> in a certain sense. You know, some things are mistakes, but then acknowledging that they really are mistakes is the, then the teacher. Right. In the, however, in the working process with actors, I have to say there really is no such thing as a mistake. Mm-hmm. What you what you do in um, a rehearsal room in uh, in preparation in, in private under private conditions is often I'll say to the actors, "Hey, let's start off by doing it really wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, let's do it badly." Mm-hmm. Everyone laughs, you know, take off their jackets. Um, and so you've, you've broken the taboo that there is such a thing as right and also that if somebody doesn't guess immediately which way to go that there's going to be criticism coming in hard on them and so on. And it's by, by creating this space which is not permissive in the psychotherapeutic sense. It's boundaried. It's got 
there are certain things that are going to work. It's going to be, if that's too big and theatrical or too small and subtle, we will find out how to bring it in or pull, pull it out or whatever. But in the moment of exploring, the actor must have the space, just as when one's writing, one must give oneself that space to try stuff out and and to fall over and you know in the taking of risks is the mother of invention i mean some of these clichés are are there for good reason it is true mm. um and we live in a culture of discouragement so you have to give in a way as a director you're providing the encouragement for others the encouragement of course that you crave for yourself mm-hmm. but you have to <laughs> give up on the idea you're going to get that from the actors or the crew but you have to somehow find a way of bringing that from within everybody is drowning in doubt mm. one of the things that becomes clear in these interviews even <coughs> the big film stars Jude Law and, and Judy Christie and so on all talk when given half a chance and a genuine listening ear about their own terrors insecurities and doubts all artists are dealing with that maybe all human beings are dealing with those questions so to, in a way, deny them, refuse them, or be damning too fast mm. is colluding with, with, the, with the culture, a larger culture of discouragement. I mean, it's interesting, of course, I guess, if we're looking at language again, that the word mistake also almost suggests a kind of mistaken take within, within a film set shoot uh, and contains within it that, that filmic possibility, perhaps. But, of course, one of the impulses behind the idea that there is a mistake is the financial pressure on film shoots as well and around uh, the set or the location. But in terms of what you arrive at together collectively with the actors, particularly in this case, there's talk in the book, you talk and they talk as well about this idea of arriving at some kind of truth or at least, if not arriving, temporarily gathering together some expression of truth. And, and what do you think, having written the book and made seven feature films, worked with wonderful actors, what do you think that shared sense of truth means? None of us know what it is, but we all <coughs> recognise it when we see it um, in terms of performance, you know, sort of hit it it's it's um the forces are in alignment or character narrative timing framing the, the musicality and so on are all in one line it strays in a interesting way into an area both of metaphysics and of instinct when you're on a shoot you have to work you have to work so fast i mean i pack more into one day of a shoot than i do into months of my everyday life mm. and i don't know how it's possible so you're going you're on kind of red alert go like a rocket but you have to go like a rocket to the right place <laughs> um or you're in trouble so you have to therefore refine this tool this in, invaluable tool called instinct mm-hmm. which i believe to be high speed thought and experience mixed that arrives you know and there isn't time to figure out why or uh, or exactly what so instinct yes and then this metaphysical sense of what is true is so complex that i'm i'm not sure that i have language for it exactly but one has a sense of something that is not fake not inauthentic <laughs> is transparent you know you you feel with an actor anyway that when the true moment arrives you're looking into them you are invited into them Mm. you're not being 
shown something. Mm. And it's that quality of invitation that, 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 first of all, you extend to the people you work with on both sides of the camera. Come with me, my darlings. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of that sort of talk um, for good reason. Um, and then that they, in turn, without words, extend to the audience through the lens, come to me. I mean, we've been talking about film, and of course we also uh, explored live performance, but we now have at our disposal as an audience this weird hybrid of film theatre, which arrives in cinemas from the National Theatre or the RSC or many other places, which tries to be both at the same time for audiences and perhaps even to a certain degree, at least on the official paperwork for performers. What is your take on that? On that? On that? Is it a new form? Is it? It's more than a, a televisual staging of a play. How do you think about that? That new expression well, it seems to be very popular. Mm -hmm. So people are obviously enjoying it. Uh, it's cheaper, of course, than going to the opera. Oh, it makes it makes things accessible that would not otherwise be accessible, and it still has some of the thrill of the live moment. You know. What's really exciting about the live moment partly is it could go wrong. So you're kind of sharing that risk. Um, and I can see the appeal of that. And I think it's, it's probably the beginning of, of something else. When I was working on Rage, um, and knowing that the, the film would go out on mobile phones and so on, the, the world of the miniature as well as the large, um, I started exploring what one could do with live. Well, actually, I was with Simon Abkarian, who's one of the people here. We were on a press junket in New York, and I was doing an interview for a conference, um, a sort of conference thing, uh, in London via my laptop. It was sort of slightly pre-Skype, but anyway. And I, we decided that I would get Simon to come in pretending to be a waiter while I was being interviewed and keep interrupting the the conversation that was going out live to a big audience in London. What was exciting about it was not so much the fact that people were fooled, although they were, but that what it suggested one, one might be able to do, sort of live, live cinema, but really live cinema. I haven't followed it up yet. <laughs> so far. I think that's absolutely enough of me. Um, I'd love to open it up to whoever would like to respond, comment, challenge, provoke. Thank you. I wanted to ask a question about working with untrained actors, what are called untrained actors. Um, I think all the actors you've mentioned in your book so far are quite well-known, famous people. So do you have something useful to say about that? I think um, there's not a really fundamentally an enormous difference. Actors tend to have been trained, and often the process of working, in my experience, is about unlearning that training. Uh, when you work with somebody who's not trained, the expectation they might have or, or feel they have to do is start imitating things they've seen, but one can quickly unhook that. I think the fundamental thing is, again, is building a relationship and finding what works with the individual. Uh, you know, what is it that helps this so-called untrained actor to become present, to relax to make a link, uh, find the impulse from within to speak or to be silent, um, exactly the same issues. I think all the, the well-known actors have is they have this additional layer of thing, uh, in addition to experience, which can be both useful and not useful, depending on who they've worked with. Um, they have this layer of fame and celebrity that 
can be an incredible impediment to their own work, uh, their own life, actually, but also to their work. And so acknowledging that and the weird, the weird behavior of people around famous people is an important part of the package. Untrained people obviously don't have that to deal with, but they probably feel fearful, insecure. So kindness is step one um, and clarity. I'd like to just pick up on the um, your discussion about the difference between directing uh, film actors and theatre actors. Uh, it's not the critical difference, the degree of control you have. Because um, in film, your control is absolute. Whereas uh, in theatre, however many years you spend preparing the actors... Once the chemistry of being in front of an audience begins to work its magic, shall we say, uh, the actors at the back of their minds know that they can go off in all sorts of directions in order to satisfy both themselves and indeed the audience. How do you confront that issue? Uh, you're absolutely right. There is a huge central difference of control. Um, many actors feel that um, when they're finally on on the stage when they're performing a play or a piece, that they can, in a way, control their own destiny within that hour and a half, two hours, three hours, whatever it may be, and even start to change the original direction. But they're also sometimes haunted by the fact that this may be the case, but it's only this audience this night who are going to see this. When they work on a film, what they have to, and it can be very difficult at the beginning for some stage actors, is enter joyfully and willingly into a state of surrender. Surrender to the process because they are not going to be able to control every step of it. But the camera can come closer, much closer, can really see and really validate their work. And in the moment of shooting uh, a take or a scene, they have a, a degree of subtle control of nuance that is almost impossible on the stage. So, you know, there are, there are different issues that they're dealing with, but you're quite right to bring that up. Um, be really interested to hear you talk about casting, particularly the kind of the, the social aspect of that. You know, whether you make an approach to an actor or an actor makes an approach to you. I'm thinking particularly, I suppose, of Christine Hendricks in Ginger and Rosie. At the height of her Mad Men fame, she makes a film with you know a British director of a very different kind. And I just wondered if you could say something about casting. Casting is probably the single most important set of decisions that a director makes. You know, the the film will often stand or fall on on the choice and uh, if you if you wrong foot that and go against your own instinct as a director you're in trouble christina hendricks i have to say auditioned for ginger and rosa she wanted to do it and she auditioned american actors are much, often however famous they are actually much more both humble and relaxed about the auditioning process and think of it as an opportunity to learn something to try something out to work albeit briefly with with a new director um, and she particularly obviously wanted to, was very strongly motivated to work on something very different than Mad Men. For a lot of uh, actors working in television, the, the the fear is that they will become trapped in the one role and forever identified with the one role. And this was a very, very different role. 
working in the European tradition of the director controlling the casting, which is not always the case in America or in situations where the director is brought in for hire, sometimes already with an actor attached, but I've never done that. Um, it means that um, I choose all of the roles and I take as long as it takes to ch to make that choice. I don't work in isolation. I work with casting directors, um, two in particular, one here and one in LA, LA that I've worked with on many films. And that is a relationship um, in which there's a great deal of often caustic brainstorming and a huge amounts of research, viewing, checking, putting pictures together, trying to figure out an ensemble, trying to second guess. And then finally, it's about meetings. So I usually um, handwrite a letter to an actor. People are very surprised to get an envelope with ink. <laughs> and then we meet and you, know, you feel within, within about two and a half seconds whether it's going to work or not. And the rest of the hour is, in a way, the playing out of a ritual, like a sort of tea ceremony, a dance. You start working, actually, from the first moment, I think, that, that you meet an actor. But the reasons for choosing an actor can be very complicated, not just that they have to resemble physically the part, but how are they, are they going to be correct? If you're creating a family, for example, are they going to be credible as, as family dynamics? Or, or are they perhaps not necessarily exactly what one imagined? One is surprised and delighted to be surprised that they're different than, than I had imagined but that what they do in that first meeting is kind of offer themselves up in a way that is so intoxicatingly thrilling that you know you can do anything with this person, even if they're 30 years older or younger than you imagined and completely different coloring or whatever, it doesn't really matter. It's that quality, it's the dynamic of meeting in the middle of the space between you and saying, hey, let's do this thing together, you know. And that, that sort of surrender to the work and the longing to work that is the quality one is looking for. I just wonder if I could follow on from the last two questions in a way. Because, of course, what, what you bring to writing and directing, which is not the case, of course, for, for the vast majority of writer-directors, is this, as we've talked about, this immersion in both the performative, the live space, and also film. And a lot of your working with actors involves a kind of heightened realism where you bring a performative element, a larger sense of, you know, what is crudely called the theatrical into a filmic space. And I wonder if that sense of the performative, which is, you know, is a, is a, is a kind of tweaking of the, of the idea of realism or, or filmic realism has always been, has always been well received by actors who are much more familiar and maybe exclusively familiar with working within film. I've never thought of it as theatrical. No, I use that no, word very, no, very this deliberately. This is crucial badly. because I know some people have um, have said that. I'm not sure about that either. I think that um, what I've come to understand is that this word "real" mm. and "realistic" is totally culturally specific mm -hmm. and incredibly individual. Mm. So what for some people, uh, for example, <coughs> is melodrama in family life, for me is what I grew up with. It's normal. People shouting, throwing stuff, getting divorced, having affairs, you know, anarchists. You know, that's normal life, okay? Uh, working with people from different cultures, working with Simon Abkarian, Lebanese, Armenian, also living in Paris, multilingual. 
for him, the definition of what's real, you know, he, he speaks beautifully in here, but is, you know, the sword in your hand. I mean, he lives and breathes what we would think of as melodramatic metaphor. It's real. It's real. Who defines what's real? You know, what we've, what we've all had is, the, is our sense of the real battered out of us in, this, in the name of normalcy. You know, so, hey, uh, what I try and work with with actors is for them, to, for the thing we're working on to become the most intensely itself it can be. Talking about rage, I was trying to think how you would persuade the actors' agents that they should be in this movie. I mean, clearly you've got some big hitters in there. But when you pitched the idea, it must have sounded so improbable. Series of soliloquies building up a sense of a drama going on off stage. Did you have to use extraordinary persuasive powers to get these people to involve themselves? No. I had to show them the script. Actors are the best readers of scripts. Often financiers look at something, particularly that I've written, it seems, and are baffled. But actors invariably, in my experience, get, oh, yes, oh, can't wait to get my hands on that. They, they, they read the subtext that the text and the spoken word is there to support, the, in a way, the spoken word and the actions of the architecture holding these in, invisible movements through and around, and the actors see that immediately, and it's the, the gap between the spoken and the unspoken is the gap they are all longing to dive into, is where they do their work. So but pitching and all that stuff, I mean, agents, if, we, if you can make a direct line to somebody, write them a letter, show them a script, meet, done. Uh, of course, sometimes it's not like that. Um, and somebody I'm absolutely convinced is right for a role, uh, I will approach and I'm so sure that they're right for the role that I can, I can imagine them so deeply in the role that it seems like an affront. It seems like the universe is unraveling if it doesn't happen. But if I can have the self-discipline to say, okay, that just means there's somebody even better that I haven't yet thought of and take that approach and on the same premise as there's no mistake, there's also no obstacle or disaster, really. There's just an opportunity to do better. Um, and I found that to be true. So that um, if you asked me, do I always get the person I want, I would quite confidently say yes, because I've forgotten the people I first wanted. You said something very early on in your talk about the language of film. So I'm wondering, did you come to a conclusion about what is this language of film? You know, of all the languages in the world that might be that might be considered discordant, is film a universal language? I don't think it's a universal language, but I think it's an international art form. And I've discovered that because, for example, some of my films are hugely more successful in terms of numbers of people seeing them in, say, Italy, Ginger and Rosa in Brazil and Argentina. I mean, un unexpected places. One never quite knows where the film, a film is going to land. Uh, most of my films have been distributed in 30 or 40 countries, I guess. Some more, some less. However, the film, of course, can't be written for all of those cultures. You write from a place uh, and about a place or a space or a, a subject that is specific. But um, it, as a medium, it's very transportable. 
And people do go to cinemas or watch television or DVD or buy DVDs all over the world. But it's, it's a mongrel art form. It's a coming together of other art forms. It's synthetic. Um, and that is its, its appeal in a way is its lack of purity, but which also makes it endless. As for the language and did I come to any conclusions? No, I came, the only conclusions I came to was that it was a language in evolution. It was a, a vocabulary, if you like, that could be pushed and pulled and explored and that it was a very young medium only since the beginning of the 20th century compared to literature. But building on literature, portraiture, theatre, all of its, all of the roots of cinema are as ancient as anything else. The arena is as ancient as the Greeks. And if one can recognize that, then one starts to get down to this true thing. Thank you very much. Well, I'm certainly not going to follow on from the true thing, except to say that at the heart of the book, um, is Sally's Barefoot Filmmaking Manifesto, which I'm not going to ask her to read now, but which I urge you to read, and which summarises, in a sense, a lot of what we talked about here tonight, but also absolutely uh, makes the case that I've hopefully made this evening that this book and that manifesto spill beyond working with actors into all art forms and all relationships with the creative process. So it's a crucial manifesto. I just will tantalise you with the first line. The best time to start is now. But importantly, the last line, get some sleep when you can. Um, so before you get some sleep when you can later this evening, please do join me in thanking Sally Potter. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 